Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. The document known as the Constitution of Medina has been described as the first ever written constitution in human history. Some attempt to use it to defend and formulate their political views, while others question its authenticity and significance. How important is the Constitution of Medina to our view of an ideal society? What were the major goals and themes of this document, and how relevant are they? to our practice and understanding of Islam today. Welcome to Double Take, a podcast by Yaqeen Institute about the questions and ideas around Islam and Muslims that give us pause. Remember to subscribe to the show on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Mohammed Zad, and today on the show, we're diving into the document popularly known as the Constitution of Medina. With me is Dr. Awaymer Anjum, author of the Yaqeen Institute paper, The Constitution of Medina, Translation, Commentary, and Meaning Today. Dr. Awaymer Anjum is the Imam Khattab Endowed Chair of Islamic Studies at the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at the University of Toledo. He has a PhD in Islamic intellectual history. He's got a master's in social sciences, a master's in computer science, and a bachelor's in nuclear engineering and physics. Dr. Awaymer, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, and welcome to Double Tech. Alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you so much, uh, Doctor, for joining us. Um, I'm really looking forward to the episode today. Um, just to kick off, uh, for those of us, simple people like myself, who hasn't studied nuclear science, um, what is the constitution of Medina? I hear it in sound bites. I hear it from politicians in, say, Tunisia or um, uh, academics who, uh, who reference it or people who are, who are trying to kind of uh, dive into it from a political, political lens. Um, what is the document and what's in it? All right. So, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah. Wassalatu wassalam ala Rasulillah. The document, um, which is known as uh, Sahifat Medina or Kitab uh, Medina, the writing or script, uh, script or uh, uh, the scroll of Medina, if you will, um, is said to be a document that um, uh, that contains the treaty that the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam concluded when he came to Medina uh, right after the Hijrah. Um, that is the typical view, but scholars from the very early, from very early on have questioned uh, exactly um, when it was written and some of its mm -hmm. contents. But its significance for Muslims and particularly contemporary Muslims, is that it shows how eager the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam was to make peace um, and to have fair and equitable coexistence with people of other faith. And it, um, as a document, it has this attraction that it is concise. It's one one simple document that sounds like uh, what modern constitutions of nation states are, and I think mm -hmm. that that is perhaps the reason why um, it has acquired this oversized significance uh, in the eyes of Muslims. Which is why um, I'm going to be questioning some of the assumptions around it, but not the mm -hmm. document itself, which I think is. 
fairly established that it is an authentic document, and it does, in fact, uh, undoubtedly show the Prophet's commitment, alayhi salatu wasalam, to fairness, to diplomacy, to dealing with conflict through negotiation and uh, clarity, and in fact, also with with written um, agreements rather than arbitrary or changing norms. Fair enough. Um, so b- based on uh, what I read in the article and, and, and some of my really basic research, um, are we talking about, and correct me if I'm wrong, we're talking about a document that's say two, three, a four pages long, say 50, 50 lines or so. Um, and it's uh, main kind of uh, themes. One surrounds Muslims in Medina. The other one um, surrounds uh, Muslims' interactions with non-Muslims in Medina. Um, and its general kind of message is that of how to um, how to interact in a diverse society um, with multiple communities. Is that kind of a general the general understanding of 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 the constitution? Perfect. Right. You you summarize it really well. It is a document about um, coexistence and about also identity. Now. Um, I guess there, there are two parts. I'm going to talk a little bit about the document and then my article, yeah. which addresses, yeah, which presents a, 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 a translation and commentary on the document and then contemporary uses and abuses of it. But let's first talk about the, the actual document. You, as you said, it is, you know, a couple of pages long and um, there are various versions of it. And in terms of authenticity, I'm going to set that question aside for now. And, yeah. But, but, its content. What is it? It has two parts. Uh, first part is a treaty among the believers, al-mu'minin, mm-hmm. right? Uh, basically, what responsibilities do Muslims have to each other? Who are Muslims? So in that sense, the document begins with uh, a really, really important declaration, which we find confirmed in the Quran as well, which is that all believers are one ummah, min dunin nas, to the exclusion of all other people. So it defines something called an ummah, and that ummah is the ummah of believers, the believers in Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam and the Quran, um, and it declares a purpose of this ummah, right? So this is an ummah that the very first and second clauses say this ummah is ummah of believers. Anyone who joins us and does jihad with us, right? So an important thing right from the beginning is struggling in the path of Allah. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the constitution of the ummah. The ummah, it's an ummah that, uh, or a community that struggles in the path of Allah. And then the second part of the document is mm-hmm. a treaty with the Jews, which is called muwada'a or truce, which suggests that there may be some conflict before uh, or possibility of a conflict. So the Prophet ﷺ uh, establishes this peace uh, through this document. The first part of the document um, is about um, relations among Muslims, among various uns- tribes of Ansar, uh, and then uh, among the Mujahideen as one of the groups. So it 
basically takes a pre-Islamic institution of Aqila, which were basically mm-hmm. self-help groups, and it confirms them. Basically, you can, people you know, of Ansar, people of Medina, you can keep your uh, Aqila the way you had before, and all the Muslims who had come now from Mecca because of persecution for their religion, uh, these muhajireen that had come, they all form one aqila. And what their duties are to each other. And one emphasis you find in the first part is equality of the believers and fairness so that, you know, nobody is going to be overburdened with, you know, the, the, the if you will, the tough task, the dirty, dirty work. There is going to be fairness and people are going to uh, if there is a dispute, people are going to come to the Prophet ﷺ. The second part is the treaty with the Jews, and yeah. that one uh, is often what is taken to be the most uh, significant part of the document. Before reading your article, frankly, um, I know the, the constitution of Medina as something that's paraded amongst Muslims, both uh, those who are political activists um, or even um, uh, religious scholars who who show it as an example of the Prophet's progressiveness and how he, he moved humanity forward. Um, now, there are a couple of clouds that, after reading your article, uh, have kind of uh, featured around the article. And the first one is around the authenticity. So I just want to turn the corner on that, if that's okay with you. Um, is the document authentic? Because I've seen that there are questions on its authenticity. And if it's not so authentic then, you know, do we take anything from it? So those, those are great questions. And the, the short answer to the first part, is it authentic? The answer is, um, in Islam, we have a very sophisticated system of measuring authenticity. So usually the answer to this question is not yes and no, right? There is the highest level of authenticity, which is the Qur'an. And then there are mutawatir ahadith right, reports that have multiple narrators from the Prophet Sallallahu and they're all authentic or reliable narrators and so on. Mm-hmm. And then there are reports that are ahad, they do not reach the level of mutawatir or multiple independent narrations, but you have one or f- only a few narrations. And then you have narrations that are weak, um, meaning that they're missing either the whole isnad or there is they're missing uh, link uh, for in this case, for example, the narrator, the, the chains that we have for this are, uh, they fall in the realm of weak. So okay. in that sense, right, if you were to say a typical scholar who is sort of deriving ahkam and sharia would look at this and say, this is weak hadith and I can reject mm-hmm. it. However, if you look at it as an historical fact or historical question, now there are certain things about which uh, the only way for us to know whether something happened or not is whether the report is authentic or not. But there are certain other types of reports that have further corroboration um, in the way that people behaved and uh, in the way that especially the Sira literature is written, which shows sort of a more continuous narrative. So if you put all of these things together, uh, it is a weak narration that is corroborated by hadith or sira, uh, sorry, by sira and uh, history, tarikh literature. Um, and that is why most scholars take it to be authentic. 
Um, okay. But there is, first, there are different levels, if you will, of acceptance. One, there is absolutely no disagreement among scholars that when the Prophet ﷺ came to Medina, he made a deal with the Jews. There is absolutely no disagreement. Okay. So the, the question is whether be, that was written down in a document that is what we, we see as the Constitution. Absolutely. Right? right? So that okay. is the question that we are talking about. We're not talking about whether there was an agreement. It's whether what we have is what the what the agreement was. The final the final word. Okay. Right. But in your in your research, um, having studied the histories um, and having studied basically not just the Sirah, but also all the all the relevant references to this document um, after the Prophet um, and in the first few generations, you still find it relevant, um, and most scholars find it authentic. That is correct. I find the document to be authentic, as do most scholars that are working on the Sirah. I don't know of any significant scholar of the Sirah who has rejected it completely. Okay. How, for someone who's a young, say, activist who's trying to kind of um, uh, propel society forward in Western society, in, in um, Muslim communities, um, how relevant is this document to me? Everything that the Prophet ﷺ said and did is relevant, right, For as a believer, because uh, what he did is the, the center of our understanding. And the Quran is a commentary on what the Prophet ﷺ is doing and saying. So every word of the Prophet ﷺ, especially something as significant as this, uh, is, is important for the scholarly purpose, for the spiritual purpose of, of living and following the Prophet ﷺ. However, um, what I question in my article is the many abuses to which this document is subjected. Okay. Um, that's why I first began the title of the article with air quotes, the Constitution. Because when we use the word Constitution, we mean something by it. Like it's a, usually a constraint on the powers of the sovereign. Mm -hmm. But this document is written at a time when the Prophet ﷺ does not wield complete power over Medina. Okay, okay, fair enough. So like typically a constitution, I guess, and I, from, from my understanding, sorry to, to interrupt no, you, has, um, it, it, it tries to limit the power of, of the monarch or the, the leader, um, and it also seeks to guarantee certain rights to the followers of that monarch or, or leader. And, and so you're saying the Prophet ﷺ, didn't really have power when he walked into to Medina um, as such. Like it wasn't, he wasn't the leader of the full society. There were still deals to be broken, etc. Is that correct? Yes. So that is why the Prophet ﷺ, there is nothing that would limit the powers of the Prophet ﷺ because he doesn't have power. So this is like what you're yeah. dealing with is he is establishing order uh, by making deals with the main power brokers. And secondly, he is a prophet, alayhi salatu wasalam, and there is absolutely no ruler, right, in, in Islam, particularly in Sunni Islam, that can claim to be infallible and who has the right to be followed, which, uh, you know, which is exactly the first thing that Abu Bakr as-Siddiq says, radiallahu an, when he is elected, the first thing that he says, I'm not the best of you, if I'm right, uh, follow me, if I'm wrong, correct me. So basically, 
without the correction, or, or sorry, without this declaration of Abu Bakr, um, the constitution of Medina is incomplete for the purpose that we want to use it. Not, not that it's incomplete for the purpose that it served at the time, but it is not a constitution in the sense that we think of it until you also add the sunnah, the way of the Rashidun Caliphs, because it is when you are not a prophet, then you govern, then the limitations that you have are entirely different. So even if, if it was written at the end of the prophet's term, alayhi salatu wasalam, there would be nothing limiting the power of the, the prophet because he's speaking on behalf of God and we simply do not have anyone who can do that after the Prophet So that's one big thing that we need to keep in mind when we are thinking about the constitution or the Sahifa of Medina. Like now whether I'm whether or not the, 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 the modern context or the modern kind of definition of constitution is relevant for this particular document. And we're saying it's not really that relevant because they're two different things. The Prophet walked into a society, didn't have um, a power. So then if, if the Prophet didn't have power, what drove him to to broker this deal and what drove him to write this document effectively? Like what was the context? What was he walking into and what was he seeking to achieve through this? He is seeking first, in the first part of the document, he is making clear to the believers what their rights and duties are to each other and what our mission is as a group. That we are here to establish the deen of Allah, that we are uh, we are an ummah uh, to the exception of all other people, which is the declaration that basically tribalism is secondary, if not eliminated from certain considerations, that you all belong to different tribes. You all, uh, the two tribes of the of Medina, right? Aus and Khazraj were fighting each other. That's all gone. You are one body. And okay. you had perhaps connections with outsiders before. Those connections are all secondary. They're not gone but they're all secondary to the, the first identity you have as a member of this ummah. And then the part with the Jews is saying that you have your religion and we're not going to force you, uh, force our religion onto you. And we're going to, uh, we have certain shared interests and we're going, and that is to defend Medina from outsiders. And we're going to do that together and we're going to spend money together on this. What is interesting about this uh, document, uh, you know, if you compare it to, to later, if you will, post-prophetic history or later prophetic history, is in, there is no concept of dhimma here, right? Meaning that non-Muslim uh, minorities are not treated as protected minorities but rather as tribes with whom you have a deal. That, and so when it really is a question of when there is war, instead of Muslims protecting everyone and charging a, uh, a tax uh, on the protected people, you're making a different deal. You're basically saying, if you share the defense with us, then uh, there is going to be no zimma, there's no poll tax, Rather, there is share. Why, Doctor, why is that um, distinction important? Um, that in, in the Constitution, which we're not calling the Constitution, but for the sake Sahifa. of this episode, we are. Sahifa, okay, fine. Um, um, so, 
that distinction where in the Sahifa we're, we're talking, are we talking to, to Jews as equals, like so they're a different tribe that we're partnering with in Medina versus later in, in the Prophet's uh, uh, life, we're talking them, to them as what? So, uh, just help me kind of uh, get my framing correct, if you don't mind. Like, what's the distinction here? That, that's a great question. And the question of equal citizenship often is comes up when people are discussing the Sahifa. And I'm interested in historical truth and the religious truth rather yeah. than whether you find the document progressive or democratic or not, right? Uh, mm-hmm. As scholars and followers of the Prophet ﷺ, those should not be the first concern questions we ask. Um, so is the Sahifa a document that grants equal citizenship to the Jews? Well, the answer to that question is their question is wrong. There is no citizenship. Uh, the concept of citizenship is modern, right? Uh, there is no individual citizenship that's given to anyone. This is a deal made with a group. Uh, for its time and for what the Prophet's mission was, which is to preach Islam, this is an extremely generous principle document that says, you keep your religion, I keep my religion, I'm not going to force my religion on you. And in that sense, yes, there is a measure, measure of reciprocity and equality, not equal citizenship, I'm taking out citizenship as well from our conversation. There is equality and fairness, right? Yet, the Prophet ﷺ is almost working in this document at two levels. One, as a prophet, he's saying, I'm preaching the truth. This is the truth. Come join me. But if you don't join me, I'm not forcing you. Um, and you will have rights. That, and there is going to be this reciprocity, um, and there are later sections in the document that really bring out this reciprocity, that, you know, if Muslims call the Jews to something uh, it, to make other alliances or to some other agreement or some other common project, that the Jews will respond positively, or at least, you know, they promise they will consider it positively, and vice versa. So let's say Jews have an idea of establishing a market and they come to the Muslims, and Muslims now have a duty by this so it's of goodwill that, yeah, you know what, maybe a common market will be a great idea. I'm just giving an example. The actual uh, section just says anything that Muslims call the Jews to that is good, Jews will consider it positively and, and vice versa, right? So it is really an open-ended document that is saying, look, we're going to have collaboration and reciprocity. However, Again, as a historian and as a believer, you have to look at what the Prophet was actually saying. When it comes to dealing with the Meccans, Mm -hmm. the Jews do not have a choice to make a deal with them because they have declared war on the Prophet and they have prevented Islam. Um, And his mission is Islam, first and foremost, to establish his uh, and preach his religion. And so... This document says that making a deal with the Meccans is not an option. That is, because that would be treason. Um, And at this time, the context of this is that the Meccans are in fact trying to, to use back channels to make a deal with the Jews against the believers. So on one side, the document is, I guess, generous, 
to the non-Muslims in the sense that you know we're we're working together for for a single cause to protect. Oh, we're protecting Islam, but we're also protecting Medina and we're supporting each other in this kind of um, diverse society. But on the other side is like you know caution, beware. You can't do one, two, three. Um, the least of which dealing with um, the enemies of of the Muslims. So in one way, it's almost like the document protects certain rights, but also limits um, certain imaginations of of those non-Muslims. Yes, it limits the right. Effectively, it limits the possibility of anyone obstructing the da'wah, obstructing the preaching for which the Prophet ﷺ came. Um, so it says, and this is also, by the way, one thing that we didn't mention is that part of this document are also uh, pagans or, uh, you know, yeah. mushriks who are among the Arab, among the Ansar, right? There are people in their tribes who have not yet converted and they are part party to this treaty. So it's not just for the Jews, but also for those uh, others. And uh, this is, of course, an early phase in Medina. Later, um, the, um, the mushriks or um, uh, associationists or idolaters were not considered. They were. They were. They were not considered Arab idolaters. Were not considered party to the final uh, verses that came, in which they were not allowed to live in Medina. Also, outside of Medina or outside of the Hijaz uh, or Arabia. Um, the same uh, deal of Dhimma could be could be concluded with them. So this actually points us to this other feature of this, that this is a relatively early document and, and certain of its uh, sections were abrogated uh, later, by later verses. So Dr. Oymer, uh, in terms of using this document in modern context, um, we have certain politicians that reference it. Um, we have certain activists that reference it. Um, you, you are quite critical of how it is used in, in modern times. Um, can you give me an example of how it's misused and what the problem with the general use of this document is in our time? Okay, excellent question. So first of all, let me make the positive statement of what, what I think that the use of this document is and, and how it's helpful and how sure. uh, the, the, the goals that we have of peaceful coexistence um, are in fact better served by a holistic reading of the Quran and the Sunnah, right? Rather than saying just this one document, right? We would not accept this idea of taking one hadith of the Prophet ﷺ and saying, this is what I follow and everything else in the Quran and Sunnah, right? Uh, is irrelevant to me. I mean, if somebody said that, we would laugh them out the court. Like, this is, what are you talking about, man? You write one hadith and you think you're a scholar, right? This is something, is a common refrain. But oddly, we tend to do this with this one document, right? And if I can summarize my critique of this use, it's, it's this. Not that the document itself is not valid or it's not interesting or it's not instructive. It's all of them. It's just that there's too much emphasis on it. Exactly. It's like it's yeah. somebody who read one hadith and they think, that explains everything to them. In my view, and I show that, uh, you know, or I suggest that in the document, you know, of course, uh, in my article, that there are other 
uh, verses that are in fact more compassionate, more expansive and tolerant than the document um, that make concessions toward non-Muslims. Um, and there are uh, values that in the Prophet's practice, والسلام, that we learn in Hadith and we learn in the Quran that are not in the document. So what we need is a holistic understanding of, um, of, of the rights that Islam gives to all human beings and uh, the freedoms that Islam gives to all human beings. And for that, you need to look at the Qur'an. The Qur'an, of course, is the word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? And when I see people displacing the Qur'an and the Sunnah and the holistic tradition of Islamic jurisprudence uh, by using one document, I call foul. Like, that's what I'm saying. Fair enough. And then um, in terms of, uh, so that, that's your main kind of criticism. Are there any other misuses? Like, is there something that just... Like, oh my God, are they really saying that when they reference this document? Absolutely. I'm sure there is. I'm trying to pull it from you. Absolutely. So I'll give you two, two abuses almost in the opposite direction. By, I, and I'm sympathetic to both sides, by the way, in their projects, or at least somewhat sympathetic, but it's what they're doing. So one is a group that says, you know, we want uh, equal citizenship, a secular nation state, and basically... Uh, kind of thing that you see with Sheikh Rashid al-Ghanoushi in Tunisia, mm-hmm. um, who, you, who has begun to use this document to effectively argue for sort of secular citizenship. And, you know, if you want to go for it, if that's your thing, a lot of Muslims are doing that, go for it. But don't say this is, you know, coming from the Quran and Sunnah, and don't say that this is the document that gives you justification for it. Um so there is no secular citizenship in this document because the, the, the I mean the first two sentences of the document are this is an ummah of believers to the exclusion of everyone else and its purpose is to make da'wah right how can you say that this is secular citizenship where people can have any faith uh, they want um, and you know the purpose of a secular state is simply to exist you define your own goals whereas this is a document that says oh the ummah has a goal and that goal is of course there in the quran as well so that's one side of abuse sure uh, the other side of abuse is by people uh, and this appears in the marrakesh declaration which was sponsored by the united arab emirates and their abuse is very interesting they it's abuse more, more by silence uh, or an omission rather. So, for instance, they use this document and they say, look, there is no minority and there are no majority in Islam. Um, everybody has, you know, this is the document that is very tolerant. What they don't say is that the very idea of majority and minority becomes important if people have a right to hold people, hold their rulers accountable and elect their rulers. And they do completely take that out of the picture. For them, mm-hmm. okay. they are, um, in fact, supporting a completely unaccountable uh, monarchy, right? And uh, Somehow, what they're trying to say is that, oh, our this document gives you rights without there any accountability, without any procedure for, uh, for electing or even raising your voice against the rulers and the rulers that they're trying to 
that they are presenting these documents to, right, and who are sponsoring this, I mean, these are, they have the worst human rights record uh, in the world, uh, where uh, 80% of their population is foreign workers that are living in conditions that would be considered slavery or worse. And these people are talking about, you know, declaration of human rights and, you know, uh, and they talk about peace, right? So this is, the idea is that this document is making peace, but they are behind almost every major war in the Middle East, and they're often on the side of uh, the dictators and colonizers. They are normalizers with Israel, right? They, in fact, are pushing away Palestinians, um, and then they talk about peace. So that's the other kind of abuse. The, the document is attractive to these people because it doesn't talk about the limits on the ruler's power. I feel like I'm, um, I've just wound you up, but we're <laughs> almost, uh, we're almost, uh, at the <laughs> uh, so Dr. Awaymer, I have one final question. Um, imagine my nine year old niece, uh, joins us on Zoom and says to you, Dr. Awaymer, um, you've studied all these great things such as, uh, nuclear sciences and Islamic history and mashallah. Um, and she says to you, I've, um, I've studied a bit of the Quran and I follow the Prophet and I've read a lot of the hadiths. Um, but then I stumbled across this document, um, uh, which sounds and looks amazing. It's a constitution. Um, what, how do I even benefit from this constitution and what are the limits of my reading of this constitution? What do I not find in it? So it's a bit of an open-ended question, but basically in 30 seconds or less, what is the constitution? How do I benefit from it? And what, what are its limitations? So I'd say that the Sahifa should be treated as a hadith out of, you know, 100,000 hadith. Uh, each one of them is important in different ways. And one of the cardinal principles of our deen is that we um, have, if you will, a hierarchy of sources. The most important thing is the Quran and then the the fundamental sort of hadith that everybody agrees on and so on. And in that sense, everything that you learn from the Prophet's life, you're going to learn, uh, you're going to benefit from it. And this Sahifa is an amazing hadith. It has some weakness, but it has some corroboration. But it's an amazing hadith because it shows how the Prophet ﷺ was eager to make peace without compromising his mission. Dr. Awaymer, Jazakallah Khair, thank you so much. Um, for those of us who are not familiar with the Constitution or the Sahifa, as we now call it, um, and uh, and all the kind of question marks around it, I recommend you read Dr. Awaymer's paper on yaqeeninstitute.org. Jazakallah Khair, Dr.